Welcome to Justice Studio Sessions. I am Marianne Moore, foundress of Justice Studio. During these sessions, we will be exploring the social justice themes that have emerged through Justice Studio's work, showcase grassroots activism, and deep dive into ethical and equitable research and consultancy methods. Stay tuned to learn more about the complexities of social justice and how you can turn your passion into action. Hello, dear listeners. In this episode, we are going to be talking about child slavery within the chocolate industry. This is a topic which is not known enough about and really affects us as we are massive consumers of chocolate. It's important to dive into this issue and understand the facts so that we can work out what the chocolate industry is telling us and how we can challenge them to be better. Justice Studio came across this issue when we were doing a project for the German government, a kind of collection of different departments, including the Ministry for Climate, Nature and Nuclear Safety, which is the MWK in its acronym. What we were doing was an evaluation of the International Climate Initiative called ICI, which was a programme to look at the coffee and the cocoa sectors and help them survive and thrive in this era of COVID-19. And as part of that, we were looking at all processes of the value chain of the cocoa and the coffee industries, including looking at safeguarding, child labour and women's equality. And it is through this project that we realised how much of an issue child slavery within the chocolate industry really is. Joining us today, we have Terry Collingsworth. He's an international human rights lawyer and founder of International Rights Advocates. He was general counsel of the International Labour Rights Forum from 1989 to 2006 and made executive director in 2001. Since 2007, Terry has focused primarily on human rights and bringing lawyers, educators and human rights activists together to collaborate on strategic litigation, public policy, consumer campaigns and targeted actions against child slavery in the chocolate industry. He has an awful lot to tell us about this topic, so let's hear what he has to say. Hello, Terry. It's lovely to see you all the way from Washington. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, It's good to be here. I hope that we can uh, raise some interesting issues for your audience. Yes, definitely. This is going to be a really interesting and important issue. Of course, we're going to be talking about children in the chocolate industry and the experience of that and the, and the slavery and the forced labor that is inherent in that industry at the moment. So it will be really, really great to hear all of your all of your expertise around that. And for the listeners who listening there, would you mind just saying a little bit about yourself in your own words? Sure. Well, right now, today, I'm the executive Mm. director of the International Rights Advocates, which is a nonprofit legal advocacy organization based in Washington. And most of what we do is try to represent people who have been abused in the global economy by multinational corporations, for example, child workers in the cocoa sector. Uh, 
This is a refinement of our initial goals. I began as a union lawyer and started looking around the world after globalization occurred and realized that what was lacking was representation or any kind of advocacy for the people who weren't in unions, child workers, women workers in Bangladesh, workers that were being abused by the global economy, which really expanded specifically to abuse them. Companies left the United States and Europe to go searching for places where there were no enforced labor laws and there were no enforced environmental laws, and that created a huge need for advocacy for the new global economy workers. Wow. Gosh, yes, I didn't realize that there was kind of almost like a deliberate searching of of places where there would be less regulation. Wow. Okay. We're going to be getting a lot into that. And yeah, I, I think this issue around children in the in the cocoa industry was something that I, I came across relatively recently as part of one of our projects where we were evaluating the, the value chains within the cocoa and the coffee industry as part of a reconstruction project in in Africa. And I was really, really appalled about of what was going on and it and it's so amazing to have you here because you are an expert on this and you've been advocating for children in this sector for a while now you you've mentioned a little bit about about your background are you able to tell us more specifically about what it was or how you kind of came to find out about the the issue of, of children within the the cocoa industry and and kind of how you came to be one of the the leading advocates in it well, initially in my work, I was I was looking to connect with unions in the developing world. And so I developed a lot of contacts around the world and initially did work with unions that were trying to organize sectors that had been part of the, the growth in the global economy, particularly garments. And in that process, I, I heard from several people who were doing research in uh, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire on child labor. Specifically, there was one sort of gonzo journalist named Robin Romano who had, had gotten into Cote d'Ivoire even during the time when there was a civil conflict raging. And he took the original photos, their iconic photos of children that were doing all kinds of hazardous work, using machetes, climbing trees, and uh, applying pesticides. And it was his photos that got me very interested in and aware of this problem. And that was in about 1999. So Robin and I teamed up and did the initial report that we provided to our Congress in 2000 to try to get the United States Congress to take action. So that, that was the beginning of our work on COCO. And what happened as a result of that? Did they listen? Well, it's a, it's a sad and continuing story that we presented the photos and our findings, as did other groups. This, this was suddenly the Civil War had kind of wound down in Cote d'Ivoire so others could get in. And, and so we presented the report and our, our Congress is divided. It's bicameral. So the House of Representatives with Elliot Engel from New York sponsoring the bill, passed an immediate bipartisan, overwhelming majority voted for a law that would have required all cocoa companies importing cocoa from Cote d'Ivoire to establish 
that their cocoa was not harvested by children. Bill then went over to the, the Senate, which is a much more deliberative and slow body, sort of like your House of Lords, I would imagine. And there, the cocoa industry, which we had caught by surprise in the House, they got the best lobbyists that money could buy, including George Mitchell, who did the Irish Accords, Bob Dole, who was a former presidential candidate. And they took that law and they watered it down to what became known as the Harkin Engel Protocol, which was a voluntary protocol. So they shifted this from a mandatory law to a voluntary protocol, which they still 22, 23 years later have yet to honor. And I want to stress that this protocol admitted that there was forced child labor and other of the worst forms of child labor in cocoa harvesting. They admitted this in writing. All of the big CEOs of the major companies signed it. So it was their promise. It wasn't me or anyone else saying, you must stop using child labor. They promised to stop by the year 2005. They gave themselves four years. What they've done since then is given themselves now four unilateral extensions of time to comply with their own voluntary commitment. And currently, most of the companies have said they will stop by 2025. Well, actually, they say they'll reduce by 70% their use of child labor by 2025. And several of the companies, including Mars and Mondelez, have already extended out again to 2030. I expect all the other companies will follow suit. So this is just a marvelous example of evil genius. These companies admit that they're doing this, that they're still using child labor and the worst forms of child labor and that they'll stop at some point whenever they can, but they keep giving themselves permission to keep doing it. And that, that's where we are right now. And that's why I keep filing lawsuits against them, because I don't believe they will ever stop until a court or a regulatory body of some sort forces them to comply with their own promise. Wow, I, di I didn't realize how manipulative that had been in the creation. I think it would be really helpful just to give a bit of context for people to kind of talk about the the chocolate industry in general and if if you could explain who the main chocolate companies are because I know that some are brands that are recognizable and some aren't and there is a whole load of different companies that are kind of subsumed within other companies so just to get a bit of a sense of it so that so that we can we can then kind of go into into more detail could you just tell us a bit about the the general picture of it well, at the top, there are three companies that most people will not have heard of. The American conglomerate Cargill. Cargill is a closely held family-owned corporation that is the largest privately held corporation in the world. They are probably the biggest player in cocoa. So Cargill has cocoa farms in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana that they themselves manage they they operate their own farms and they sell cocoa to the other major brands like Nestle, Mars, Hershey, etc. So Cargill is one of the bigger players and they're one of the companies that I have been litigating against for about 20 years. Then there's Barry Calibut, which is the European equivalent of Cargill. 
and and Olam, another European equivalent of of Cargill. So those three are are the brandless, sort of faceless giant corporations that control most of the cocoa sector. Then following them are the name brands that most people know, Nestle, Mondelez, Hershey, Mars. Now, there's certainly Ferraro as well in Europe, but I'm not dealing with them in my work because we don't have a, a, a route to sue them here in the United States. But these name brands, for example, Mars and Mondelez, they have their own plantations that they claim are theirs, that they work with the farmers on, et cetera. But they also use these giant holding companies, Cargill, Barry Caliban, and Olam to acquire more cocoa. But essentially every brand name in the chocolate sector is using forced and, and other forms of the worst types of child labor to harvest their cocoa in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. And all of these companies are among those who promised in 2001 when they signed the Harkin Angle Protocol to stop using the worst forms of child labor. So those those three massive ones that you mentioned, that are the, the brandless ones, do you say that they own the the branded ones? They're they're behind the branded ones, or, or they're supplying the branded ones? They're just supplying the branded ones. Okay. So the branded ones typically have their own sources of cocoa, and then they also use to to obtain all that they need, they can then purchase from these other giant corporations that are merely selling cocoa to others. Right. And um, and in terms of the industry, we're not right to trust either, either these big three or 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 the branded ones own plantations. They're they're all they're all kind of involved in the same kind of thing. Absolutely correct. They they all there's not one of them that has done anything significant to stop using the worst forms of child labor in Cote d'Ivoire, in Ghana. Instead, they have ramped up their public relations exercises to continue to lie to the public about what they're doing. And also they're spending millions of dollars on lobbyists and lawyers to prevent any meaningful form of regulation. I recently went to Ghana because a whistleblower, this whistleblower was working with Cargill, Mondelez, and Mars. And he contacted me. He had a high position in one of the companies. And he wanted, he essentially said, come to Ghana and I think it'll be worth your while. He showed me plantations that I could have never found that were attributable to Mondelez, Mars, or Cargill that had nothing but children. I mean, it wasn't like there was occasional kid you could spot back there. They were they were all children. And these companies have lied to the public about the great progress they're making in reducing child labor, and they've made no progress. But what he really revealed to us is that he was personally in charge of their rehabilitation programs, and that the programs are themselves a fraud. He showed me documents where there were lists of children that had been rehabilitated by one of these three companies. And there were three different levels of fraud. First, if if a child, in fact, on the list had, in fact, been rehabilitated with quotes, all that happened was they got a backpack 
and a school notebook and their picture taken so they could be listed as a rehabilitated child and then they were sent back to work. Nothing other than that. So I met some kids that had backpacks and school books, but they were still working and they were not in school full time. A second level of fraud was there were kids on the list who existed, who were real children, but they didn't even get the damn backpack or school book. They just were listed as rehabilitated and they didn't even get anything. And then a third category is there were lots of kids on the list that didn't even exist because our whistleblower told us there's pressure on the line level workers for the cocoa companies to show that they've rehabilitated lots and lots of kids. So they just make up names. So that is so criminal that these companies that are multi, multi-billion dollar companies, they promised you, the consumer, they've promised the public, they've promised Congress that they are re- rehabilitating children they find working. And in fact, they're not. And the most that a kid can get after being denied an education, being denied nutritious meals, living the life of a slave, the most they're going to get from these rich companies promising the public that they're doing good is a friggin' backpack and a school book. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just hideous. In, in terms of trying to understand the whole nature of the industry, we have a situation whereby the the chocolate industry is obviously operating in many, many different layers, isn't it? It's got, you know, the holding companies and the, the other companies and the branded companies and and the suppliers, and it goes right down to the ground where you have the, the children who are being exploited in this way. Are, are you able to kind of explain a little bit about these pockets and how it works? You've mentioned the Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire, and you've mentioned Ghana. Are these the only places or are there other places? And, and how can you, can you kind of like show us how it gets down to that granular level in these countries? Well, Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, the, the, the estimates vary between 70 and 80%, but somewhere between 70 and 80% of the world's cocoa comes from those two countries. There's a smattering of cocoa produced by Nigeria, Tanzania, and then certainly in some countries of, of South America, Brazil, Ecuador. But 70 to 80% comes from Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. And that's where we are focused because those are the countries where today and going back before 2000, a company could get away with using forced child labor, traffic child labor, the worst forms of child labor, deforestation of national parks, whatever they want, they're getting away with it in Cote d'Ivoire in Ghana. Now, now the way the industry works, I think that they'll try to paint you a picture of its vast complexity, but it's very simple. These companies either, let's take Nestle, one of the worst actors out there, Nestle either has its own controlled plantations where they have relationships with the farmers. They get to, they get 100% of the production of the farms that they are working with. And then they also buy cocoa from Cargill, Barry Calibut or Olam, depending on the area, the region and so on. But that's it. I mean, there's not a whole lot of other things going on. There are so-called buying companies that operate a little bit like a middle person, they're like Tutan is a very big one in uh, Ghana. 
they are a middle person in the sense that a, a Mondelez or a Mars will contract with them to sort of handle the plantations and the supply chain that they are connected to. But that's it. I mean, they, they control that agent. The agent is essentially working directly for the Mars or the Mondelez. But there's not much more than that. And then the root of the evil of all of this is the price of cocoa. The companies will tell you, the consumer, that they, they don't, they'd love to be more generous. They'd like to give more money. But the reality is that they all are together in what is, has to be a massive antitrust violation. They are all together in an organization called the World Cocoa Foundation. It's headquartered in Washington, but its major office, its operational center is in uh, Cote d'Ivoire. So it is true that the governments of Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana will get together and they will set a minimum price for cocoa. The World Cocoa Foundation, and, and by the way, its officers are made up of the major cocoa companies. I think Cargill has the vice presidency. I'm not sure who the president is as I sit here, but this is not like an independent entity. The companies mm -hmm. themselves set it up. The board of directors is made up of the major cocoa companies. They're in the room when Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire are meeting to set the minimum price. So believe me, they have an influence over what that price will be. They're the ones that are going to pay it. Now, even if Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana's governments are incredibly corrupt, and they are, even they would like to see their farmers not living in poverty, but the, the cocoa industry itself is applying pressure to keep that price low. Now, the key here in the word game that they play, a major, major fraud, is that the, this meeting that sets the annual price sets the minimum price, minimum. There's nothing that would prevent any of these companies from doubling it, tripling it, but they create the impression that they can't, that that's the price, but it is the minimum price. So they are committing fraud to the public when they sort of say, our hands are tied, we'd like to do more. They could do more and there's nothing stopping them. On a one-to-one -one basis, if you ask Nestle, well, why don't you buck the trend and pay more? They'll claim they're at a, they'd, put, they'd be put at a competitive disadvantage if they paid more than Mars. Well, maybe, but the, the point is they should all be required to pay a livable wage to their farmers. And they don't, they collude to not do that. And then from there, it's every horror that occurs in the cocoa industry is because of that low price. Mm -hmm. A farmer cannot afford to feed his family on that price of cocoa. So the farmer either uses his own children or brings in traffic children from, from Mali or Burkina Faso. But the industry is driven by the fact that to harvest the cocoa, the farmer needs essentially free labor to get the job done. And even that is not enough for that farmer to take care of his own family. Incredible. And this reminds me of the slavery industry that we've had before, you know, uh, supposedly 200 years ago when, when slaves were farming things like sugar and where what was controlling the market was just this drive to compete and to have as much money as possible. Because of course, these chocolate companies are earning loads of profits, aren't they? They're paying nothing on the ground and they're, they're managing to make a lot of profits for themselves. 
Absolutely. And and they they are multi multi billion dollar companies and many of them are controlled by families, Ferraro, Mars, Mondelez, that and Cargill where five or six members of a family are billionaires built on the backs of these these poor farmers and the children who are harvesting the cocoa for them. In the United States, there is a, a major campaign against Cargill run by an organization called Stand.Earth. And they are doing very, very uh, innovative research to highlight that the seven or eight members of the Cargill McMillan families that own the Cargill Corporation, each of them are multi-billionaires. They have giant mansions. They're making tens of millions of dollars a year just from the the stock dividends that they do nothing to earn. And you know that that's capitalism run amok, where a few families are are enriched to anyone's wildest dreams on the labor of children who are working for free, performing very hazardous work and are prevented from getting an education which condemns them to this life for the rest of their lives. I mean, you've mentioned that the reason that children are used because they're they're cheap and, you know, and free potentially, but it also means that anyone who is a, an adult farmer also is just incredibly impoverished. It, isn't it? It's it's a very, very difficult way of sustaining yourself. I certainly remember that from our project that people were finding it very hard. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes the the companies individually or through the World Cocoa Foundation, they'll sort of blame the farmers. Like, it's not us that's hiring or bringing on children to work. It's the farmer. Well, that farmer is starving. That farmer is trying very hard to feed his family, including his own children, who often are required to work because otherwise the farmer won't be able to even harvest the meager amount of cocoa that he has. So it is a system where the the farmers are doomed to fail because they have no agency. They can't negotiate with the cocoa companies. They're at the mercy of their own governments. So they are often people who were themselves child laborers, never got an education, never really got a chance to develop. I mean, if you're raised under conditions of malnutrition when you're a child and you're performing hazardous work exposed to hazardous chemicals, your chances of breaking out of that system are almost zero. I'm not even aware of anyone who has done that. So so it is a it is like you said exactly like slavery 200 years ago, except that the slaves are, are maintained in place. They are on their, in their home country producing a product that is easy to transport, cocoa. May I just ask about fair trade and, and that trademark, because I know that I'm sure some people will be thinking, what about fair trade? Is, is that working? Does that exist? Fair Trade and Rainforest Alliance in the cocoa sector is the only one I can speak to, is a complete fraud. They are complicit in this system because they allow their label to be misused to create the impression that if it says Fair Trade or Rainforest Alliance, it is child labor free. They do not even claim to be monitoring for child labor. They know that there's child labor 
And yet they allow this to happen because they receive a tremendous amount of money from the cocoa companies for the use of their label. So they're licensing that label. They are paid to do that. And so they have an interest in perpetuating this system. The only thing the fair trade label is supposed to or technically stand for is that the farmers in the cocoa supply chain that has a fair trade label were paid a premium for the cocoa harvest, a small premium. In most cases, in many cases, let me say, the farmer didn't even get that premium. The premium is paid to a cooperative that the farmer is a member of. There's corruption. Many farmers have dropped out of the program because it's not worth the trouble, the paperwork that is involved. But in no, under no circumstances does that label stand for the fact that there's no child labor in the supply chain. Here in the United States, Rainforest Alliance has been sued once, and I think they're going to face additional lawsuits, as is fair trade, for consumer fraud, because that label is is misused to create the false impression that the cocoa is child labor free. And so I, I've tried to meet these people. I've tried to confront them. They are very attached to the cocoa companies. Let's say they're in bed with the cocoa companies and they have a mutual interest in perpetuating this public fraud. Gosh, I remember talking to um, a female farmer as part of the project that we did. And, and I know that she kind of was really desperate to try and get better prices for her produce and and didn't know how to kind of get this fair trade mark or even to kind of be connected with them. But yes, it seems like that even that wouldn't have been that helpful for her. I wonder if we can go into the, some of the kind of definitions around around kind of child labor, child trafficking and child slavery. They all mean slightly different things. And I, I think that there's there's really all of them, aren't there, in the industry. It would be it would be great if you could just explain a little bit about some of this terminology and, and what kind of situations we find children in in the, in the chocolate industry. Sure. Let me begin by telling a, a, a brief anecdote, anecdote that when I first met the, the leadership of the World Cocoa Foundation in, uh, in Cote d'Ivoire, the vice president was named Tim McCoy. He has since left uh, the WCF. He's an American. He was from Tennessee. And he said to me, you know, he had a Tennessee accent, Southern accent. He said, you know, Terry, these kids, you know, they're just working with their families after school. They're just, you know, helping out on the family farm like I did when I was a kid. I, I milked the cows before school. And I, I, I really lost my temper on that because there's no, there's no comparison whatsoever. The law is clear. I think the, the law that we should focus on are the ILO conventions because all of the countries of the world agree to the standard. ILO Convention 182 identifies what are called the worst forms of child labor that no child is permitted to perform. I will add, though, that in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, there are laws prohibiting child labor. In Ghana, there's even a, a tougher law than in the United States, and it, it protects girl children even, even more. They're not allowed, for example, to ever apply pesticides because of the potential harm it could do when they have children. 
So with that said, there's no there's no country in the world that I'm aware of that does not have a law prohibiting child labor. So so what are, what are the definitions? Well, under ILO Convention 182, children between 14 and 16 are allowed to perform what is called light work if they're in school for full time. So you know, let, let's say they could water the plants or they could carry light loads of something. They could bring the, the cocoa pods to a, a gathering place if the, if the load isn't too heavy. Uh, there's, not, there's none of that. Every child that I've ever seen, filmed, interviewed, that is working in the cocoa sector, they are performing what is called hazardous work. They are using machetes. That a child under the age of 16 can never, ever touch a machete. It is a sharp instrument. I just did a, in our trip to Ghana, a CBS news crew came with me and filmed this. Almost every child that we interviewed had scars on his or her arms or legs because of machete accidents. These are extremely sharp tools. No child is allowed to touch those. Most of them are applying pesticides and herbicides. They describe how they do it in, in, in my interviews with them and in the CBS film as well. They have no protective gear, but no child is permitted to apply pesticides, period. So when the cocoa industry today is trying to now paint this as a normal family farm situation where the kids are helping their parents and it's all good, it's kind of sweet, they're working together on the family farm. That is a lie. No child is allowed to perform these dangerous tasks and no child is allowed to perform any work unless they're in school full time and none of these kids are. So that is illegal child labor. So we can draw a bright line there that under Convention 182, all of the tasks that are needed to be done on a cocoa farm are off limits to all children. There's no legal work on a cocoa farm that is going on today. Then worse than that, perhaps, I think it is, are the children who are trafficked and forced to work. This happens a lot more in Cote d'Ivoire than in Ghana. I'm not sure why I, I'm trying to really identify that because it's important to understand. But in Cote d'Ivoire, I'd say at least half of the kids that I've interviewed across the years were trafficked from either Cote d'Ivoire or sorry, from Mali or Burkina Faso. And how that works. And I, I've been to the trafficking points. I've interviewed many trafficked children while they were working. And once they've returned back home. They are approached at a, the typical place for trafficking in, in Mali is a bus station. There's one in Sakaso that is the biggest town that's near the border of Cote d'Ivoire. I witnessed this myself. There are these guys called labor brokers that come up to a kid, they'll approach a kid. Kids gather at the bus stations to look for odd jobs like there are tea shops, bicycle repair shops, little restaurants that are at the bus station to serve people who are about to travel. So the labor broker will go up to a kid and, and offer them a job. They'll say, would you like to go to Harvest Cocoa? I'll pay you $100 at the end of the season, and it'll be, it'll be a great job. 
So they collect a bunch of kids who say yes to this because it is an outrageously good offer. $50 would be plenty to get a kid to work for you for a year. So they'll collect a bunch of these kids, promise them this great job. They'll, they'll put them in a van and drive them across the border to Cote d'Ivoire, take them to the middle of nowhere, and then they will sell them to a farmer. So eventually the kid ends up in the middle of nowhere in Cote d'Ivoire where they speak a different language. The kid has no papers. The kid is illiterate. The kid does not have a penny in his pocket. And then he'll be told the truth, which is work or starve. And that is 100% of the stories of the trafficked children that I have interviewed and that I represent in court cases. So what always happens is, so they, they, these labor brokers and the farmers themselves, they understand exactly what they're doing. They'll pick a kid who's 12 or 13, and they can count on the fact that for a few years at least, that kid is gonna be terrified of the authority figure who wields a stick. They get beat if they, if they disobey or if they mouth off or anything. So they're under this form of corporal punishment, and they know that kid is gonna listen for several years. All of the kids that I interviewed that escaped, they told essentially the same story. They got to be 15 or 16, and they realized that they were going to be stuck here for the rest of their lives, and, and that wouldn't be a very long life given the conditions they were working under. So at some point, they get fed up, and they just walk away. Again, they have no papers, no money, no, no ability to communicate with, with the local folks, but they just figure out, I'm going to walk, I'll, I'll eat off the land, I'll steal even if I have to, I'll get an odd job, whatever it takes, I'm going to get out of here. And some of them make it out. We don't know how many don't, how many end up on another farm, but the ones that I, I've interviewed, they, they do make it home eventually, and they all have horrible stories of the journey. But that is a pure form of slavery. They are kidnapped under false pretenses and then put to work and told to work or starve. And that happens a lot. And it is because Mali and Burkina Faso are even poorer than Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. And so those kids, they don't even have the option of finding a cocoa job in their home country. And they are easily lured into this slavery type situation. Oh, it's horrendous. Yeah, it's slavery. It, it is. It is no doubt slavery. On our website, which is www.internationalrightsadvocates.org, you can click on the Coco case. There's a article that I wrote called Meet the John Doe's, and it is a detailed account of the first six child slaves that I represented in Doe versus Nestle. And it tells their stories of each of them, how they got kidnapped, what their conditions were like, and their, their, their stories are typical. And, and I don't think people are really grasping that this is not the family farm situation. Most of it is a brutal form of physical exploitation of children by multinational corporations in the year 2024. Yeah, exactly. We think that we're so pro progressive nowadays, and yet this is basically the same thing that's been happening all these 200 years. Yes. I, from, from a lot of the work that we've done on 
for on children and child protection and, and the issues facing the most vulnerable children often it is the children that are in these horrible situations that come from difficult circumstances in the first place that they have poverty they may be orphans or they may come from abusive households it are these the kind of children that are being picked up by these traffickers or are they coming from homes which which would otherwise be stable and what kind of what kind of kind of basic background are they coming from no, they are coming from extreme poverty. Their families cannot feed them easily. They are allowed to go out each day to look for odd jobs because the family needs them to do that. And they are very vulnerable then to this kind of kidnapping because any offer of, of money or food or a promise of anything steady for them is an irresistible offer. A lot of the work that you're doing is is advocating on behalf of these children. Can you tell us more about and 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 also you're you're advocating on a more international level or against legislation? Can you tell us a bit about your campaign and and the different strands of it and 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 what it is that you're kind of arguing against or how you're arguing against this practice? First, I want to stress that we in in all of our activities, we are not saying to the cocoa companies we have this great idea. You should listen to me. I, I, I know everything. I'm going to tell you that you should stop using child labor. We are saying to the companies, keep the promise you made 23 years ago when you signed the Harkin Angle Protocol. I'm not imposing my values, my standards, my sense of properness on you. I'm saying you are required to keep your commitment that you made to the public and to the United States Congress that you were gonna stop using the worst forms of child labor. So every aspect of what we do is trying to make clear to the public that we aren't imposing anything on them. We are asking them, we're trying to force them to keep their promise. And so right now our, our approach is really three prongs with the idea of forcing them to keep their promise. The first and the one that I spend the most of my time on is filing cases against the corporations under U.S. law. We have currently three pending cases, but there's one that we lost that is perhaps the most famous one called Doe versus Nestle. We sued the cocoa companies in 2006, which was the year after they made clear that they weren't going to keep their promise in 2005. Instead of honoring the Harkin Angle Protocol, they gave themselves an extension of time till 2008. So we sued them in 2006 under a, a law called the Alien Tort Statute. We went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court interpreted this statute, the Alien Tort Statute, in a in a bizarre way to obviously help the corporate community by saying that this statute which prohibits anyone from uh, using forced labor or any other form of uh, international law violation that we had to add they added this requirement that we had to show that the the acts occurred mainly in the united states which is an absurdity that only our Supreme Court, which is very right-wing and pro-corporate, could have done, and they did. 
they said that unless we could show that most of the activity occurred in the United States, the statute doesn't apply extraterritorially. We have a proposal to fix that in our Congress to make clear that it is extraterritorial, but our current Congress is the House of Representatives. It's very right-wing, dysfunctional. It, it's not going to go anywhere until we have a full Democratic Congress again. So we, we branched out into other areas of legal advocacy. So we have a case pending under a different law called the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which allows us to sue on behalf of children who are trafficked or forced to work. So in that case, we represent eight Malian former child slaves that escaped back to Mali, and they have brought a claim against all of the big companies that I've named, Cargill, Mondelez, Hershey's, Barry Calibut, Olam, Nestle, and I think that's it. All of those companies together are participating in a system of forced child labor and trafficked child labor. That case is pending in our, our Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, and we expect to win that. We have a second case that we recently filed based on the whistleblower bringing me to Ghana and showing me the realities of the fraud that is committed both in the child labor prohibition programs and the rehabilitation programs. So we filed that case mainly focusing on the consumer fraud. So in Washington, D.C., we have a consumer fraud statute. We base the case on consumer fraud and other forms of uh, unjust enrichment by the corporations. So that case is based on different laws. So we have two tracks there of a federal statute, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, and then consumer fraud and unjust enrichment in state court. We also have a case pending against our U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Uh, we filed a petition under the law which says that they have to ban the importation of cocoa that is harvested with forced labor. So we put in a petition that showed that cocoa coming in from Cote d'Ivoire is harvested by forced child labor. There's no question of that. The U.S. Department of Labor agrees with that. There's study after study after study that a lot of the cocoa coming in is harvested by forced child labor. But the the even the Biden administration, we filed it under Trump, but the Biden administration hasn't done anything either. It was just sitting there. They were taking no action. So we sued under something called the Administrative Procedure Act, which allows us to challenge a government agency that is not taking required action under the statute. So that case is, is now pending in uh, the Court of International Trade. We're just getting started on that. So those are the three different legal cases, and we'll bring more. I think the consumer fraud area has a lot of potential. The second thing that we're doing is a public education campaign. And most of that is launched from a film that Mickey Mastrati recently produced called A Chocolate War, which is focused on our work in trying to stop the cocoa industry from profiting from child slavery. And, and Mickey follows our initial case, Doe versus Nestle, from uh, the early stages to the end and then has tremendous footage of children working, using machetes, applying pesticides, and so on. So we're trying to get people to watch that film and to understand the dynamics of the industry and to help us to 
put pressure on the companies to stop using child labor. And then we are, uh, as a third prong, we are working, we have a bill pen that we introduced in Congress that won't go anywhere, as I mentioned. We are working with the European Union on their due diligence law. Um, I'm working with lawyers in France right now under using their due diligence law to try to pressure the companies to stop using child labor. So the combination of all of those things, we hope will eventually lead to real pressure on the companies to stop this practice, which they could stop at any moment, but they're going to continue to do it until they are forced to stop this easy profit. Yeah, the work you're doing is is amazing and immense. You're working on so many different levels. And I think you're so right about this public education issue because I was I was in, incredulous that I only realized this situation recently. You know, I've been working in children's rights internationally for a long time and I was appalled that I, I hadn't realized that this was happening in an industry that is so big and so important across the world. And a lot of the stuff you're doing is in America, in, in the USA. Is there is there kind of networks that you have internationally in other countries in Europe? Is there a whole kind of group together or, or are you working a little bit in isolation here? Is it, is it a bit difficult to kind of to get the other allies? Well, I, I, we are really making fast progress in making alliances in other countries and getting lawyers to to pursue similar cases in their own countries, and and that I think it could have happened sooner. It was it was really just that we were completely focused on our cases here and then realized that that might not be sufficient. So in December, with some French lawyers, including. The, probably the most prominent human rights lawyer in France, William Bourdon. We filed a, we began the process of a case in France using their due diligence law involving a, a major supermarket there where that supermarket and all supermarkets, all, all businesses in France, I think it's over a thousand employees, they have to show that they've done due diligence, that they have no products on their shelves that are made in violation of the substantive standard of the due diligence law, which includes forced labor and child labor. So we think that has great potential. And I can't name the, the people or the company, but we are working with a law firm in, in uh, London that is looking at using their, not only due diligence laws, but their negligence laws and unjust enrichment laws to go after a particular company that has a lot of business cocoa business in in Great Britain. So so we're really starting to surround them and to I want to make clear that I could uh, close down tomorrow but this wouldn't stop that there's a mm -hmm. great momentum in the world to at least demand that major corporations aren't profiting from child slavery in the year 2024. Yeah, well, that is encouraging. I'm glad that there are more people working in this. And and I think, yeah, particularly in the UK, it's interesting because most of our chocolate manufacturers from kind of set up during the 19th century and things like that, they, they were very ethically based or they were meant to be very ethical companies often set up by Quakers. Cadbury and Fry and such like and so we we always seemed to think the chocolate industry was was pretty ethical but but actually it has really 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 turned very nasty 
It sure has. And it always was. I think that it had a veneer of sort of acceptability because of the the, the, the origins of the industry, if you will. But for example, I, I'm not sure if you've seen it yet, but I think it was in uh, April of 2020, your Channel 4 did an expose on Cadbury, that Cadbury is a product of the U.S. corporation Mondelez. And uh, Mondelez claimed... Uh, that they were now completely transparent and sustainable, and they put the coordinates of their farms in Ghana out there so people could feel assured that there was no child labor in their system. So Mickey Mastrati, who made all the, the chocolate films, including The Chocolate War, he did his first one, Dark Chocolate, and then Bitter Chocolate, and then A Chocolate War, which is about our work. He worked with Channel 4, and they went to Ghana, and they went to some of the... Uh, plantations producing Cadbury for Mondelez, and they found child labor everywhere, and they interviewed children, and it was it was almost insulting that the company Mondelez assumed that they could put their coordinates out there and claim they're completely sustainable now, and that no one would check. I mean, of course, someone's going to check, and so it it's, it's really shows their, their hubris that they don't, they feel that they're invincible, that little groups like mine, we really can't touch them, but together we're going to, we're going to make sure that the world knows. For sure. And I'm so glad that you're here talking about this today as well, because I really definitely want as many people to know about this as possible, as, as much as possible. I, 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 I am a very big chocolate eater. <laughs> you know, I kind of do love chocolate myself. And it was very, very, very upsetting to know that most of the brands that, you know, you like and, and even the ones that you think are, are ethical and maybe not as ethical as as they should be. Can you tell us a bit more about who is ethical and who's not ethical and, and, and what can we do as consumers to to help kind of put the body of weight behind your campaigning? Thank you for that question. That's very important for the audience to hear what they can do. Well, first of all, I want to say that, as I said, all of the big brands, Mars, Nestle, Hershey, Mondelez, slash Cadbury, Nestle, twice, because they're particularly horrible, their products are infested with cocoa harvested by child labor that is the worst forms of child labor and or forced and trafficked child labor. Don't use their brands. Don't just don't use them, though. You can go on our website, again, internationalrightsadvocates.org, and in the chocolate case section, there is a, a link you can click on. It's called a card, C-A-A-R-D, that allows you to send an email to each of the companies. So don't stop using their products, but send them an email saying why, that you're never going to buy a Nestle bar as long as you live until you are sure that they have kept their promise from 2001 to not only stop using illegal child labor, but to rehabilitate, to help those kids that they have profited from for years. So that's one thing you can do. Let the companies know why you're not going to use their products. I want to add that there is a company out there that is doing a brilliant marketing job claiming to be the only company that doesn't use child labor, Tony Chocoloni. They are also a fraud. I am, I am, when I get a minute, I'm going to sue them for consumer fraud. They are doing two things for sure. They are, first of all, they are using Barry Calibut to 
produce their beans. Barry Calibut, one of the worst of the major companies that uses forced child labor, traffic child labor, certainly the worst forms of child labor. Barry Calibut is in partnership with Tony Chocoloni and is processing their beans. Now, Tony's will say, oh, we're going to influence them from within and we're going to make Barry Calibut a better corporation. Well, that hasn't happened. And they're not telling you that on their label that says we are the only company that doesn't use child labor. They are partnering with a horrible, horrible company. Also, though, they won't let someone like me look at their cocoa farms. I've asked them and they, they've said, no, they trust their farmers. So Tony Chocoloni is not your solution. Your solution is go to a website called slavefreechocolate.org, slavefreechocolate.org. And on that website, you're going to find 30-some, it changes, 30-some chocolate companies that are small craft companies that really aren't using child labor. And most of them are going well beyond that minimum standard and are helping their communities. They are doing things like using their profits to, to fund schools for their farming communities or hospitals and health clinics and so on. One of them I know very well personally, it's called Askinosie Chocolate. And Sean Askinosie is the owner of the company. And I think he was really one of the innovators in this space. He not only helps fund activities for like schools and hospitals, but he transparently profit shares with his farmers. So he's showing that if you, if you move from the big corporation that cares only about profits model, you can make cocoa farming one of the most wonderful, sustainable uh, products there is. And you can feel proud to, to be a part of that by eating an, uh, one of the bars that Askinosie produces. There are many others like him that are listed on slavefreechocolate.org. Now, I will say up front, those bars are going to cost more. You're going to get a high-quality chocolate bar that is going to be 6 or $8 for a giant bar. But I have found a couple of things are true that, first of all, there's no reason why we have to treat chocolate like a a cheap commodity that we can just have, you know, all day long at will for free almost, that treat it like a luxury product, like a nice bottle of wine, that have a chocolate that you can feel really good about. And it's a you don't have to have the whole bar. Enjoy a little bit of it, but feel like you're helping the world while you're enjoying this wonderful chocolate. So just to summarize, two things you can do. Don't use the big brands and go on our website and send them an email telling them why. And then support these small companies that not only will you be enjoying great chocolate, but you yourself, by buying that bar, will be helping to improve the communities of the cocoa farmers that these small craft companies are sourcing from. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I, I remember when i heard about not not eating tony's chocoloni because I, I i know that i'd started eating that because i thought that that was going to be not you know slave free and and then obviously i spoke to you and you were like no <laughs> they're not either so that was that was really disappointing but i found that that website that you mentioned 
slavefreechocolate.org um, is really, really, really good. And there's companies in England as well as America and in Europe. So they list all sorts of different places. And and as you say, it's then you're going into the smaller providers that actually care and they really, really want to make a good product. And they also want to ensure that the, the source of that product is sustainable and, and they're putting something back. So you do get a lot out of supporting these more ethical, small businesses. Is there anything else we can do apart from these things? And how, how can we support your campaign more broadly if people want to hear about it or follow it? You can, you can contact us and get updates on the cases and our efforts uh, on, on the website. But two things we always ask people to do is, one, we're a small organization taking on these giant multinationals. We ask people to go onto our website and, and make a donation. The smallest donation, even five dollars, uh, is helpful if a bunch of people give five dollars. But we use almost—I I don't want to say what the percentage is. It's certainly high ninety percent of our any funds we raise go directly to our work. We have very low overhead. Everybody, we use a lot of volunteer labor. So your donation to international rights advocates will go a long way to help in this fight. And then also, if you have a, a skill set that you'd like to try to put to work in, in this fight, we welcome volunteers to help us with the website, help us with communications, to help us uh, even with, with, with legal work if you have those skills. So we ask people to volunteer. In addition to us, if there's an organization that you're aware of that is doing effective work in this sphere, I would urge you to support them. One that I want to give a shout out to is a new partner that we have begun working with in Ghana called ICRAW. The acronym is I-C-R-A-W-E, and they have a website, ICRAW.org. It stands for Imperial Child Rights and Women's Education, but they are about the only organization I'm aware of in Ghana that is actively working with communities to try to get the farmers to organize and, and, and have agency themselves. And they're doing direct help for communities in, in the Ghana cocoa farming communities. They're providing things like water wells and they're providing supplies for women workers. They're doing really good grassroots stuff. So I would also recommend them. But help us by joining the team is the essential message. You can be part of the fight by being a consumer advocate and also by helping an organization like ours that is directly in the fight. Amazing. Thank you so much, Terry, for, for telling us about this issue and for all of the work that you're doing. I, I don't know how you've been able to do it, just keep relentlessly fighting over all of these years. But, you know, I'm very, very impressed and grateful that you're that you're still talking about this issue because we do definitely need to bring it to more people's attention and use our consumer power to be able to to make these companies accountable, given they won't, you know, they're not going to regulate themselves, are they? So we, we need to step in and say that we're not going to stand for it. So thank you so much for your time and, and, and for being on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for allowing me to speak to your listeners and hopefully they will join the fight and we will make progress with each new person that decides they're going to join the right side of this important effort. And I, I do want to say last thing is 
we feel, those of us who are working on this issue, and those are all of my colleagues, and then I want to mention Mickey Mastrati, the filmmaker, who's now my close friend and ally, we feel that if we can't stop child slavery in 2024 in a multinational industry that sells a consumer product that is very visible, if we can't stop that, then we can't stop anything we're helpless, right? So conversely, if we can stop it, if we can show these multinationals that a united consumer group that cares about ethical issues as fundamental as child labor, if we can show them that we can stop them, then we can do other things too. We can really be a force to make the global economy a more friendly place for the people that we depend on, the farmers, the people who sew your garments, all of those people need our help. So let's start with chocolate. If we can stop it here, then we'll move on to the next sector. Here, here, brilliant. I completely agree. This is just one of the steps and we will sort it out. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you again for letting me uh, speak to your audience. for listening to Justice Studio Sessions. We have so enjoyed deep diving into social justice with you. Justice Studio provides compassionate consultancy rooted in social justice. If you would like to work with us, please visit our website at www.justicestudio.org or email us at info at This podcast relies on your support. If you love our content and would like to see this podcast reach more people, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave us a lovely review. We would be delighted for you to share your thoughts, musings, or favorite parts of the podcast with us on social media. You can tag and or follow Marianne at creatrix.london and Justice Studio at Justice Studio on all the major social sites. This podcast was hosted by Marianne Moore and produced by Justice Studio Limited. The music was by Luke Fraser at The Tonic and the artwork was by Marianne. Thank you so much for listening.